Welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're back again, and this time have yet another special guest for your oral pleasure. It is Mr. John Harper. How are you doing, John? Doing well. Excellent. And with me, as always, is my good friend, Baz. How are you doing, Baz? I'm super cool, mate. Thank you. All is well. Good. That's all right, then. So <laughs> that's the end of that podcast. See you next week, everyone. <laughs> just check it in. Everything's fine. Do you know this could be a patron special? We just say hello to game designers. <laughs> just little five minute chunks. I think it'd be nice. Let's do that. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the real podcast, however, uh, our listeners, of course, will know John from such things as Blaze in the Dark. Uh, the new Aegon, which has had uh, a reboot recently, or a fresh coat of paint at least. Uh, things like Lady Blackbird and other smaller games too. So, a whole wealth of stuff there. I think probably the one to start with, and one that we covered previously in our podcast, Blades in the Dark. Because that was something that there must be some interesting design stories about. Because it was a game that seemed to be in beta or playtest or whatever you want to call it for you know, a good number of months, maybe even a couple of years, and getting refined and refined and refined and refined. Until eventually it was released. So when you sat out on that journey, did you think it was going to be quite as long as all that? And, and was there a, like a danger it was going to forever stay trying to get to that bit where it's absolutely perfect before it finally got released? Yeah, uh, that that was a danger. It's a danger with all creative projects, I think. Um, I forget who said it, but someone said that, that art isn't completed. It's just abandoned. And I think that's, that's yeah. mostly true. Um, you can always work on something that little bit more. Uh, refined a little bit more with blades it was kind of a double a a two-stage process we had started developing it in my local group which is how i do a lot of game design i think a lot of people do just bringing an idea to the table for that week's game we didn't have a new game planned so um, i brought some ideas and one of them what had to do with that setting which i had developed previously and trying out some ideas i had around a thieves guild what would that be like uh, if, if you intentionally set out to make such a thing? So we tinkered around with that in my home group for a, a couple of years. We played different versions, many different versions, um, starting from diceless t- type ideas to uh, all kinds of stuff. It was all over the map. Trying to really get to what do you do when you, when you play a sandbox game? We've done a lot of sandbox gaming in that group. So it was almost like a workshop uh, for, for a couple of years. And that developed to a point where it seemed like it was a good idea for a product uh, and Blades in the Dark as a, as a name, as a concept, had gelled. So the Kickstarter project came together. So it had already gone through this long workshop process of refinement and playtest and many, many versions. But then when it hit Kickstarter and the backers got that first sort of preview PDF for it, that's where we really started the playtesting for real <laughs> because that, like I said, that my home group was very well versed. They, they had a lot of experience playing the sort of game that Blades was becoming. And fortunately, we then got exposure through the Kickstarter because it was much bigger than any of us anticipated. We got exposure to a bigger audience, a crowd of people that didn't have that experience and weren't well versed in um, that type of gaming. And so their feedback was really very useful to see how the materials landed with them, how the mechanics, you know, suited the, suited the play style. So it really was almost like going back into the workshop again uh, once the Kickstarter uh, preview went up. And it wasn't necessarily my intention to do another significant round of development at that point. I felt like it was going to be an, a bit, once it got exposure to the backers, there'd be some changes, but... 
Um, it really was a significant process and everyone, uh, not, I shouldn't say everyone, not all many thousands of backers, but, um, a, a large number, uh, several hundred people, uh, jumped onto the G plus community and started doing weekly play tests and feedback sessions. And it, they, they were really into it and were very, um, invested in the process of, of refining the game. And so I thought, well, I'm a fool to ignore this. I, why, why would I just press on, uh, as if I know everything like th- It's such a great resource, all these people that were so invested and excited about refining the game. So yeah, it was a not quite two years, but it was it was a long process after the Kickstarter to do the 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 next version of the game through that process. Yeah, sure. So there must be, I guess, it gets the the sort of like the the shock waves from the feedback kind of start to get less and less as you go along. I mean, mm-hmm. was there much of a hit on the first one? I mean, as you described it, you and uh, your, your group were playing, so there's probably some of the rules that were implicit in your head or the the collective heads of your group, and then you write that down on paper and give it to someone. And presumably there's some groups just doing something entirely different or not necessarily misreading what you've written, but taking the text as a written word and interpreting it just in a, a valid but entirely different way. Yeah, that there was some of that. Some of those rough edges had already been had been knocked off a bit, but the thing that the first thing that we really noticed was the idea of of the the kind of sandbox play as opposed to doing location based adventures or doing plots style roleplay. That, that we had a lot of assumptions I had as a, as the writer, and so I created these mechanics to support an o- more open faction based, uh, consequence based, um, f- sort of free flowing uh, game, but didn't then say how to necessarily do that or uh, create mechanics that that really drove that. They were they were just there to support GMs that already were kind of doing that thing and so sure. yeah. the gms that uh some people tried to run a kind of plots game with it and the, the blades fights you a bit if you try to do that um but other people just didn't really know what that style of gaming was and they said oh cool you've given us these tools for this thing that i don't really know what i don't know what that is <laughs> i would like to do it so there were only a few kind of core system type things that changed mostly it was a process of writing a text writing an instruction manual about the thing that was that worked pretty well but then it, that that thing had to be conveyed to a reader um, that maybe had never done it before and I think I think it got there there's always that better version um, mm-hmm. but but it, it definitely we started to get feedback from people that said oh okay yeah I've never done this before it's my first time GMing period and this I, I read the book and it really helped me and we're trying to get to that point where it was serving that purpose. And I think it worked well, but the effect role is the, is the mechanic that I always talk about when, uh, this comes up because it, it seemed like such a good idea and it, it got cut pretty early on. We had been using it in the home group and it was fine, but, um, blades used to have this idea that you would roll it, it besides just sort of your action resolution role. There was a kind of damage role after the fact, uh, which a lot of games do, but it, since blades covers, any type of thing for its actions, not just combat. The idea was to have this sort of generic effect roll after the fact where you would roll to see how effective you were, much like you'd roll your damage in D&D or something. Sure. And that was working okay. Like, you would try to fast-talk the blue coats, and you get a little bit of an effect on your roll, and you'd succeed at the action and then have, like, maybe a smaller effect or a greater effect or whatever. And that was based on a die roll. But 
of course, uh, once it got out of our local group where we were sort of massaging everything just so, <laughs> just the way we like it, uh, it ran into the problem that all those kind of games have where you roll the critical hit on the dragon and then you roll double ones on your damage die and, and it's a huge bummer and everybody hates that and I know that. I know better uh, <laughs> to, to not do that. Um, but I put it in my game anyway and <laughs> sure enough, uh, once the once the backers were playing they all started reporting like oh it's so we we hate this we hate doing well on an action roll and then having terrible uh, effect roll and, and it was so obvious like of course man, why did i even put that in the game but um that one that one changed immediately it was it was foolish to even put it in <laughs> yeah sure so um i suppose one of the things about mechanics while we talk about those is a curious thing for me i see is when people talk about uh, a blades or associated family of games they then sometimes need to jump straight into Apocalypse World as well, where those kind of like hashtag world games a lot of they're the same thing. Now, I know originally there was some kind of genesis there or some DNA from Apocalypse World, but I don't view Blades as an Apocalypse World game by any stretch. It's definitely its own beast. What's your view on that kind of take? Um, I think everyone has their own ideas about what what a so-called Powered by the Apocalypse game is. I, I think Vincent has basically said if if the author says it is then it is i think i think that's his <laughs> that's his stance which which is fine and i i basically agree with that too i do more or less considered blades as a power by the apocalypse game but i i'm i kind of come from a earlier phase of the before it was pbta before that was a brand right which it definitely is now and it's it's more or less solidified into a 2d6 plus your stats you have your basic moves um, that's that's generally what people mean when they say PBTA now. So I generally don't walk around waving a big PBTA flag for Blades because it's confusing <laughs> when people are going to come to it and go, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't have... I only roll one day six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't I don't usually... Yeah, it sound like there's an old school powered by the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, back back earlier on, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like, oh, back in my day, but just around 2008, 2009, uh, whatever... Um, when Vincent was first doing this stuff, his first hacks were like things like murderous ghosts, um, which is nothing like, I mean, if you just sort of glance at it, it doesn't look anything like um, apocalypse world, but the DNA is there. It does essentially have moves. It does have these sort of uh, success with consequences, driving play. It has uh, principles and agendas that are um, or organ- organizing the game. Um, and uh, the Sundered land and doomed pilgrim and some of the earlier, bits that he and Meg were, were doing, they weren't all so similar looking to, to Apocalypse World. And so there were several designers doing stuff that were very much inspired by that. And we were playing a lot. I, I think I ran at least 120-ish sessions of Apocalypse World around that time. So it was wow. just very much in my brain. And, and uh, that, that was two game groups... Two, two, two weekly game groups that were just going bananas <laughs> for for a year or year and a half. So that it was great, and it 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 got into my bones. Uh, so when I was writing Blades, the systems of, of the game there are some similarities in there about how partial success works and and uh, some of the GM principles and things. But it really is a deeper kind of below the surface level connection that i think if you've played that suite of games if you played murderous ghosts and night witches and apocalypse world and um undying 
some of the outliers that are very different. Um, you can kind of see how Blades fits in that Apocalypse World family. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, not 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 the modern PBTA like masks and and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I wouldn't put it in that camp. Was that the question? Sorry, I, I rambled. Uh, <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, that's fine. But when you, when you were looking at the rules for your game and it internalized um, Powered by the Apocalypse kind of mechanics. For Blades, were you trying to write a game that could only run Blades, or did you always have a mind on its hackability? I don't want to say generic, but its its ability mm-hmm. to power all different kinds of stories, because that, that seems to me to be a tension for a games designer. You're trying to design something that can play these stories in this way, or do you want to keep the back door open? How, how did you approach that? I think it's good to think about that very early on in a, in a, in a design process, um, and with with Apocalypse World, when we were first playtesting it, Vincent was already he was he was designing with that in mind. He was already thinking about setting up the forums. He kind of knew that it was heading in that direction, and um, I I had taken that on board um, by running. I, I, and we, when we were playing all that Apocalypse World, we were also hacking it, and we played all kinds of different settings and things with it. So that was very much on my mind when Blades was developing. At, originally, it was extremely focused. Those first that first month or so of uh, playtesting and development was extremely specific, down to uh, the the sort of thieves guild concept. Was even it was a little Lady Blackbird esque, where it was a particular group um, mm-hmm. with pre generated character concepts, and like it was extremely extremely focused. Um, I thought that might be a good way to sort of crack the problem. Um, but as the game developed, it became clear that the tools we were making for a organized crew of people going on missions together, uh, getting paid and trying, you know, struggling to get by, that's Firefly, you know, that's <laughs> that's Cowboy Bebop, that's, uh, that's a lot of things, and it started to become clear that 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 core con if we made good tools for uh, a unified crew of, of people struggling then um it, it it would work for all kinds of different settings and, and ideas so i think the it's generic in a sense that as long as that's what you're doing as long as you're playing that that crew of of people striving you can kind of put whatever coat of paint you want on it um with with some work with some decent amount of work it's not easy to hack uh, blades but i i think i feel like the crew sheet and the downtime entanglements and faction stuff really made that work and once you see a crew sheet i think cer- certain game designers who have struggled trying to make a game of a certain sort when they see the crew sheet they go ah this is what i've been missing this is the thing um, and that's kind of how we felt when we were playtesting it once once we had that crew sheet working and then the downtime was creating those entanglements for our characters really consistency consistently we knew we had something that was going to work for uh pulp space adventure or military fantasy or or whatever and um, that's another reason why there were so many people who volunteered to write stretch goals for the kickstarter because they were they saw it they they got their preview copy of blades and went oh this solves my problem now i can make my dune game or now i can make my star wars game or whatever yeah it was it it didn't start out intentional but it definitely ended up that way 
So you're going to get loads of feedback from playtesters who are disappointed they weren't going to play a traveler and be in debt for four million credits to buy the first spaceship. Or... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Those are the joyful experiences we used to have. Oh, yeah. I, me too. I, I was a big fan. <laughs> uh, and Stars Without Number also, um, which we played a lot of. That that The group that playtested Early Blades, we had just gotten out of a, a long, long Stars Without Number game. So we were, I think, primed for the the sandboxy uh, crew experience already. <laughs> yeah. And then Duskfall as a, as a setting, which to me, I mean, uh, we've talked about Blades in the Dark mechanically being in some ways a generic game, I suppose, to tell a certain type of story, but I can't separate it from Duskfall in my mind because that's always been such a, a big part of the experience and the, the, down to the layout and the look of your book and the, the feeling of the game. So where did Duskfall come? Did it happen at the same time? It was a little before that, or a lot, depending on how you look at it. Uh, a few years before, must have been, I don't know, 2012 or something, maybe. I was working at a creative agency here in Seattle, and a couple of my coworkers came to me and said, hey, we've been hearing about this D&D thing. We want, we want to do that. You do that, right? Uh, can, you, can you make D&D happen? I said, sure. Uh, so we started a group after work, and there were three people, and then there were nine people, and, you know, it just sort of turned into a thing um and we started out with with good old tom moldvay and doing doing you know serious dungeon crawling and they they were into that but of course like i think everyone did um from the beginning of of D, they started to hang around in town a little and ask start asking questions about people and oh well maybe maybe we could uh, take a piece of the action here how come the these nobles are, are taking a cut of the treasure that comes back. We we can get rid of them. And, you know, the, that the sort of sandboxiness or the city play or whatever starts to develop. And they they start they want to have an impact on the world. And so I started sketching out a little more of a stable setting, not just running dungeon after dungeon. And slowly transitioned into um, Dungeon World uh, and, and World of Dungeons, which is this little, like, two-pager thing that I made for, for Dungeon World. And that that campaign just sprawled out and it became one of those campaigns you know the the story of the level one characters that ultimately start running organizations and one of them becomes the master wizard of the tower of night and we we, we went that whole long arc and in the process of that world building and and character growth one of our friends at the office keith he uh he had made a deal with this ancient wizard uh, that involved going down into the catacombs in the lost civilization of the dwarves, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the sealed gates of death were down there, and that's where the, the underworld began, and, and all the spirits of the dead were contained. And in exchange for immortality, Keith's character uh, broke open those gates of death and uh, freed all the spirits from the underworld. <laughs> um and they all swarmed the world and uh, shattered the sun and, and swept across the land, uh, slaying uh, people and <laughs> created this huge apocalypse uh, as the, the capper for one of our sort of campaign arcs. He, he made that decision. They tried to stop him, the other players, but they, they failed. By one hit point, by the way. Uh, I, oh, wow. that, one, of, one of my favorite moments in gaming was that night when Mike rolled seven points of damage and not eight. And uh, Keith's character survived and, and cracked open the gates. But <laughs> I'm glad he did, because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Blades right now. <laughs> and it's funny as well that, um, although there's like not a hit point to be seen in Blades, 
that you've still got a story about seven hit points per eight and that kind of thing. You're still that that visceral D and D experience with all hearts and shared. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, it that's very that's funny. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, it was on three D six too. It was a it was a really bad roll. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the cataclysm happened, and I and I sent the an email to the to the group because it was sort of a show up pickup game. You know, not everyone was there. Uh, that night and so I had to send a message hey everybody by the way the world was destroyed um, when you weren't here so what do you want to do next week do you want to play during the apocalypse uh, while everything is going to hell Um, we could start a new game completely or we could just like jump ahead a thousand years uh, to the world that exists whatever however it turns out and they, and you know, we could do something industrial, or we'll have you know trains and steam power and stuff. And they all said, "Yeah, that sounds fun. Let's do the thousand year thing." So that's that's where the setting began. I started sketching out what that would look like, and this world that had survived. And Keith's character became the immortal emperor who had used his magic to kind of save some of the some of the empire from the worst of it. And that then became Ghost Lines, which is uh, another little like three-page game on my website, uh, where they worked as the kind of Ghostbusters on the train systems for the Empire, and kind of kind of working stiffs, uh, trying to get by, a uh, crew of people, all with common interest, uh, and that <laughs> you know, it that sounds strangely familiar. Yeah, hmm, <laughs> a common theme. <laughs> Uh, so we played Ghost Lines a bit, and that when that ended, that's immediately that next week is when I went to the the group with the uh, my my normal gamer group, not the office group, but went to them with the Thieves Guild uh, concept. So the setting was just right there. I had been playing it with Ghost Lines, and it seemed like a good fit um, to have this this uh, steam powered kind of thing. And then the new Thief uh, video game uh, was just coming out which none of us at the time knew that it wasn't going to be very good. Uh, so we were all excited about it, and Dishonored was out, and all that thiefy sort of um, industrial city stuff was happening, and um, everyone was really excited about it. So it immediately clicked. Um, and the the systems that needed to drive the specific setting elements... Um, they came in pretty late because we were developing the setting at the same time. So the idea of being a whisper and having these very specific ghost calling and um, elemental powers. It, when, when Dylan played the first magic using character in that first playtest, it was n- nothing like a whisper. It was uh, kind of a pseudo generic wizard character. But given the setting, over a little bit of time, Dylan started to develop interests in commanding ghosts, and you know, it, it, it sort of he he started to mold him his powers to the setting, uh, and that that fed back into the game mechanics, and it pretty much worked that way with all the characters, um, because just because they were immersed in the setting, um, when it was time for them to take a new ability or something, and we had to brainstorm what that might be all those setting-specific things started to emerge. Cool. So so while we're talking settings and we've got, we've got you here, I'm a, quite a big cyberpunk fan, so there's no vector mm. kind of in the works. Is there anything you can tell us about that or any... Yeah. 
I just I'm on version nine right now. Um, nine. <laughs> version nine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're having your own edition wars before anyone gets to see it. I know, right? <laughs> it's. I was talking to my friend Andy about this. Actually, uh, she's a big William Gibson fan, and Gibson was just talking about. I think he just recently he published um, the company. I think is the new the new book, and. I think so. He, I don't know when this was, but it was a while back. He, he said that he had sort of ripped out the guts of it and rewritten a big chunk because it wasn't like the the real world had caught was catching up. You know, he, yeah. was, he was trying to, um, and that's that's been happening to me since 2016 or so when I was first <laughs> nailing down Null Vector. It just it's just not it's not cyberpunk enough, you know, the, the, the world we live in is, is so cyberpunk now. So yeah, the, the, the initial idea was pretty, pretty straightforward. It was what you would expect, you know, it was essentially Shadowrun, more or less without, without magic. Um, and that's fine. You can do that with blades. Obviously it, it's, it's well suited for that. And there'll, there'll definitely be tools with null vector that will let people do that because I know that's what people really want. Um, but as a game designer, I want to offer something more. It's 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 not. I don't think it's uh, it's not much of a value for me to just give someone the oh you can just play a crew of cyberpunks with blades because scratch some stuff off in your character sheet. You can do that tomorrow. Yeah. So I want to I want to do something to add some value to it. And the current version nine, we'll see how long it survives, but. Uh, the current idea is is this kind of end of the line instead of the the hopeful cyberpunk fiction that of the <clears throat> people fighting back against the powers that be, um, which which Core Blades does already. Um, I thought it might be interesting to show the last kind of the last move of of a cyberpunk group, and there's a few di- few different ones you can pick from, um, and you're all you're all this is it. You, you, you can do one last thing to sort of stick it to the man. Um, but you're going down. This is, this is the final, final move. You're, you've lost the cyberpunk war, so to speak. And, um, so I, it's interesting. I I think it will be a good tool for other hackers to maybe tackle one shots. Um, because I think core blades isn't super good for one shots. In my opinion, some people really like it that way, but, um, it's hard to make it work. So I want to give some one-shot tools yeah, with Null Vector and also try to come at Cyberpunk from a different angle. And I guess maybe that's just also how I'm feeling in general, like politically, that <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> things are not getting better. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe that's infecting it too. But um, <laughs> for people who don't want to do that, there, there, there will be character sheets with cyberware and stuff and you can you can have your Cyberpunk fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the other I mean I'm not suggesting that you necessarily have to uh, try and have a go at this because you're already on version 9 but one of the interesting things for that style of game I think and a design challenge that, that I've not really seen addressed satisfactorily yet is how you do something where you could for example play being a corporation and mm. someone else is a street level hacker and someone else is I don't know the NAPD cyberware division or whatever like, to not have a character that's necessarily one individual but it could be a whole organization or a division of something or whatever it's kind of like it almost feels like that kind of setting cries out for being uh, a concept rather than an individual or whatever 
Mm. That makes sense. Totally. Yeah, that's a really that's a cool idea. That's something that I've just explored with the AI angle. Uh, one one of the starting sort of crew ideas is is this sort of AI collective. Um, but uh, but yeah, playing like human a human faction. Um, that's cool. That would totally work. Uh, I'm gonna add that to the notebook. Um, I think the the AI faction <laughs> thing will 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 work in that way. Um, yeah, I, I played. Uh, Jared Sorensen has a game called Inspectors, hmm. uh, which is his sort of yes. Ghostbusters love letter, and uh, one wonderful, wonderful game. Um, I got to play in a game with uh, Wilhelm Fitzpatrick, a friend of mine, who played uh, our our sort of hacker on the. Um, on the team, uh, but his character never appeared on screen during the whole series. Uh, we would just get, we, it was set in the eighties and we would get like faxes, uh, in the building we were in uh, communication from, from the, the hacker character, or we'd get a page, uh, or some kid would run up and like give us a message. And, uh, he was just this completely anonymous. And it turned out that he was like, this organization like like anonymous or whatever he was like a a group of people that were all helping us in different ways and um it was really fun it worked great so yeah i think the the idea of playing a group is is very cool and yeah you're right it totally suits cyberpunk very well that's 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 awesome you can, you can have human resources on the sheet and that's, actually, <laughs> that's right in the literal sense it's like... <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah all good yeah, me and Baz were about to start Scum and Villainy as well. We, we did a Session Zero with someone last week, and shout out to uh, Keeper Matt, who's going to run us through that tomorrow. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. The, the core ethos of all these kind of like games is that you've got to be a group struggling against something. And I think the, um, for me, one of the interesting bits is always that crew sheet or the, the gang that you're in or the ship you're part of. or the It's having some stake that you, you've kind of got its own character sheet and you care what happens to it and look at the numbers going up and down and try and do things and protect it and... And it's having that something else that the group all bonds with. I think that without having alignments or anything else, it's just something built into the design that gives your characters or the players all something to care about without explicitly saying you're all goodies and you want to go and put this ring in Mount Doom. It's just give, <laughs> like secretly giving you all the same mission, but without really sort of saying it as much. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely helps in a in a practical social sense. Uh, the, the the players themselves. In our Stars Without Number game, which was wonderful, the really long-running one, it went all over the place and, and had all the Stars Without Numbers fun. But almost every week, someone at the table said, "Wait, what are we doing though? Are we are we space pirates? Are we working for this fa- corporate faction? Are we explorers? Are we are scientists? We just a space taxi? Are we just yeah?" <laughs> it was always this. We, they never really knew. Like, and they're always being pulled in different directions and. We made it work, and it, it it was fine. But it was such a nagging question that that yeah, it was it was became clear that well, maybe we can just cut that out. We can say we're assassins or we're uh, a cult or whatever, and then and then you can have that interesting tension if you want to in character because now as as real people, yes, we've all agreed that we're going to be smugglers, and so if I play a character who doesn't want to be want doesn't want the life of a smuggler and and hates the situation and stuff we know that it, it that that tension is in character and we're we're going to explore that as opposed to a D party where if someone says no i really want i do want to go and like study at the holy mountain or whatever and everyone else is like we're trying to do dungeon this dungeon here over here like it's like a social problem like 
how do we play together now that our characters are so misaligned? Yeah, it turns out the answer to getting everyone on the same page was to have a same page. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you have to go very literal. (laughs) And write something at the top of it. It's true. What's it's, our mission? It's true. That is that's my GMing style too. That that's where clocks come from. Was just I always have this these index cards, and yeah. I would just write on a card like, "You're going to be captured," and like put it on the table. Like here, look, this is this is a thing. Yeah. Um, exactly. I, I get the sense, John, that you don't you don't spend a lot of money on GM screens. Is that fair <laughs> to say? You're like a public facing kind of guy. That is fair to say. I am not a GM screen user. No, I I, I really like. I like everything out, having everything out in front, having those pieces of paper, <laughs> the same page, page, that's hilarious. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of drama to be had there, I think. Um, and you can get away with it online a little bit too, but ha- having that, the unlabeled clock when someone says something and you kind of go, hmm, and you fill in a piece and they go, what is that? And you're like, nah, yeah, you know, you'll see. Um <laughs> <laughs> there's there's fun there's fun to be had there and and yeah it's the same thing with the crew sheet it's it's it is that literal thing out, out in front of everyone that everyone can see and look at and point at and dream about look at the little grid and go mm, wouldn't it be great if we had our own you know gang of whatever let's uh, let's 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 try to get that and fun where we had of um generating some story between ourselves when uh, ian McAllister of the brainwaves podcast around some games was I started complaining that we had this gang that were numerous and stupid because they're two things that go together. Well, but like they were numerous, we didn't know any of them. We didn't really. We occasionally mentioned them, but didn't bring them in. So what we decided in the end was to just have one week where we played some of these numerous and stupid gang members. So we just, you know, it was a Keystone Cops basically just messing everything up. But it was good to know that in the future, like the next session we met, our main characters would have to sort all this out. Like, but. That just like made it more fun to go and break more things and cause more trouble and get more heat and you know just do stupid stuff and you're self harming in a way in terms of the characters. But you know the challenge is good for the that's story. That's so good. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea to get to know your your cohort to actually play them. Yeah, I love that. We did a flashback in uh, one of the role role play blades sessions where two 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 of the characters had known each other from childhood. So we thought, oh, let's do a we have a filler week where not everyone can make it, so we'll do a flashback to them as, as sort of teens running around on the street, cutting purses and, and being getting in trouble. Um, and it was it was a similar kind of thing. It was yeah, we're having this fun flashback, but they did a couple things that were definitely everyone knew <laughs> they were coming back yeah. in the future and they were going to come and get them. Um, but it's there's something fun about um, ca- causing trouble for yourself. I, I like it as a gamer anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I guess I I I guess it's just just trouble is just fun in in general in gaming. If there's no trouble, what yeah. what, what are you going to do? Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, one of your other sort of massive successes, I'd probably say, and something that I still see played at quite a few conventions. Typically, uh, I go to Condemned in Amsterdam every year, and I see Lady Blackbird just played there every time at least once. And um, plenty of UK cons have it as well. Like, Looking back now, what's kind of like what are your feelings towards that? Because it's you know it's free, it's available on the onesubdesign.com website along with plenty of other stuff. Uh, it's really tight game. It feels a little bit blaze, like you say. I can see where some of the same sort of influences are there, uh, but it's just got a really good, it's got great hooks. Even the the imagery and everything. We're just looking at it, like makes you want to play in that setting and fires the imagination. Do you think 
well, I'll not tell you, I'm not actually what you think. Like, you should tell me what you think about it. <laughs> Looking back at it now, like, it still seems like a, one of those really well uh, respected and loved pieces of work that people still continuously go back to, even if they've played it 10 times. Like, have you, uh, do you think you can capture the, the essence again of that and make that happen? Or is it a, a once in a lifetime thing that happened? Or is it just, you know, what's, what's your thoughts? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I ha- I don't think I have captured it. There's I've made a few other chapters uh, for for Wild Blue Yonder games or whatever you want to call them, um, and pe- they they get played. People seem to like them, but not not as much as Lady Blackbird. That one that one definitely is the most popular. It it might well at this point it's probably Blades, but for for a long time I I I would say Lady Blackbird safely was my most played game, and Lasers and Feelings is probably approaching that now too a bit but yeah i think it's i don't I, re, recapturing is tricky because part i i think part of the reason why people respond to it very well is it it does it, it's sort of essential like it it goes to the core of concepts of those archetypes um and tries to deliver them in a archetypical situation that's suited for those archetypes so in a way they're revisiting it would kind of be rehashing those archetypes in a different way, which I don't necessarily want to do. Um, I think Magister Lore and, and Lord Skurlock do it in are also very tropey. Um, Magister Lore has the sort of uh, Jedi, Padawan, and Master kind of thing going on, which, which is another tropey thing. But yeah, Lady Blackbird definitely was intentionally made to be very uh, new, new player friendly. I it, the, the reason it happened was I uh, one day at the office. Um, I didn't have much to do that afternoon, and it so happened that my friend it was game night, and one of them said, "Hey, I'm bringing a friend from work tonight. What what should we play? That's kind of you know friendly to new players." And my philosophy around that is uh, it's the it's the trappings of the thing that are that matter a lot for new players. If they're really into pirates or whatever, then play a pirate thing. Mechanics won't matter very much in that first session. You can kind of do it for them sure. or whatever. But if you're playing um, hardcore military action with someone who's not into that at all, it doesn't matter if the mechanics are, are good. They're, they're just going to tune out. So I said, well, what do they like? And they said, oh, they love like Final Fantasy and Firefly and um, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, I can't. I don't have a game handy to do that right now, so let me just write up some characters instead. And that the the the, the thought was let's let's make a suite of characters that any any new per, person new to gaming uh, will be able to understand what they're choosing. That they're going to kind of get this this package of a persona and this very tropey thing the the smuggler captain with a heart of gold the uh, the kind of mysterious noble woman who who has who has secrets and her her loyal and tough bodyguard and very easy to to go oh I want to punch stuff I want to be this character so that was definitely the intention behind it and we played that night and just had a blast with it it worked way better than than we thought so I put it up on Story Games the next day and um, then put some art in it so yeah I think it's it's doing the thing that it was meant to do in that in that sense of having these icons and putting them in a situation that's very easy to understand. There's an evil empire, you're captured, how do you escape? I think I try to do that in general with all sorts of gaming stuff that I do. The the starting situations in Blades that ask you 
that that kind of it's an iconic thing. You're in the office with Bajo Baz, and he says you're either with us or against us. And um, I think I think games really need that. Almost all the bad gaming experiences I've had have been those nights where the adventure is in a t- two towns away, and the GM <laughs> is says you're on a road, you're walking down a road, uh, <laughs> and just all the interest just <laughs> dies completely and. Then the players end up, you know, r- wrestling a bear in a cave uh, all night and never, and never, <laughs> never get to the adventure. <laughs> I think I ran it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. John, do you, do you even consider yourself to, I mean, do you write adventures in, I guess, what would be called the classic sense anymore? Or is it, you know, the games you write, are they indicative of the way you play? Do you just come up with situations and flashpoints and characters? Because I mean, I think Lady Blackbird's an adventure, but people keep calling it a game. I don't know if it matters what you call it, but it, it seems to me to be something to play. Whereas sometimes a game is something to study or to own or to read or to mm. imagine. But Lady Blackbird means nothing without the adventure. I, I don't even know if I'm making sense to myself now, but it's a situation that needs <laughs> to go somewhere. I think I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I yeah I would I would call Lady Blackburn an adventure module like in in the classic sense, it's you you get the thing and you you play through the the various locations and it's it's a little more uh, situation flashpointy in, in a sense, but but yeah I I think it's fair to call it an adventure, but yeah I I don't write adventure I wouldn't say that I write adventures, and I I definitely don't as a GM, my GMing style is is very very blades very apocalypse world uh i and burning wheel also was a huge influence on me um as a gamer i tend to think of my gming role as playing playing characters just like the players do um i i play the npcs and their interests i also have to portray the setting but usually that's really straightforward so it's it kind of fades to the background, and I really I'm, I'm focusing on playing my characters, and the players are playing their characters, and we're all just kind of doing doing that. And when the I I, I always think of it as the um, kind of a, a jigsaw puzzle, the status quo, all the pieces are there, they they fit, and when, as soon as the players move, they they drag pieces out and ruin the puzzle, uh, and 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 twist it out of shape, and so I instead of planning future situations or plots or an adventure arc or something. I just sort of look and see what the consequences are. You did that. Okay. Who likes you because of that? Who hates you because of that? Or, or specific things like the terrain is different because you shelled it with artillery or whatever, whatever the consequences of the thing is. Um, just bring those, reincorporate that back in and then do that process again. And, that tends to, if you have a good setup, if you have Lady Blackbird with characters that are connected to each other and have problems in the world around them, just by ping-ponging consequences, you get things that look like traditional narrative stories without anyone having to kind of plan them or, or manage them or worry about when the climax against the evil duke is going to be or whatever. You can just kind of go and, sure enough, the climax of the evil duke happens because the characters are in that situation where that's likely to occur. Um, that's my own, my preferred style. Um, very improvisational and situation-based. Can you ever imagine a world where there might be an adventure pack for 
Blades in the Dark, or what you would call a module from back in the day. Seems hard to imagine, but equally something I'd like to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about it. Um, there are some ways in there. I guess I can talk about two things that are in the pipeline. One is the Blue Coats supplement, which the the playtest materials, some of the playtest materials are out for backers now, and uh, the I think on Monday maybe um, more stuff is going up. And in that you play, you don't just play the Blue Coats. Well, you can. Um, if you play the Blue Coats, you you can just grab a crew sheet like Bravos or whatever, and you can rough people up in your neighborhood and be extortive, terrible <laughs> cops. You can do that already in Blades if you want to. You're just wearing blue coat uniforms, but you're scoundrels like everybody else. So for the supplement, um, you play um, an Imperial Mandate, um, which is a special warrant given by the Emperor, and they send an inspector from out of town. They're always an, an outsider to serve the Mandate, and then they get a couple or three local precinct blue coats put on their mandate to to execute this warrant uh, uh, whatever it is and so your your crew sheet so to speak is your is the mandate uh, that you're serving it's modular-esque i would say uh because you're you, you you can probably imagine the the kind of like the wire or something like the the cork board with the organ the, the criminal organization on it and you're tying red threads to it and you're trying to work your way up to get the big boss and that that concept, it's not quite that, but it, it's similar to that. Um, so you're starting out with the small fish, pulling people in, interrogating, getting evidence, building a case. Um, all the while your superiors are breathing down your neck and they want results. They don't care if they're guilty or not. They just want they want the case, you know, to go away. You got those pressures. Um, and you, you play you play the mandate. You don't play to find out what happens in the characters' lives, although that definitely will happen. Um, you don't play your crew rising in tier or anything like that. You you play out this sort of self-contained. You could call it a module. I think it's it's got specific NPCs that are already in place and and all of that, a specific setting. So it's very self-contained. Or you can play a spirit warden imperative, uh, which is a similar thing, but it's um, for the spirit wardens and has to do with a demon that's been sighted in the city and dismantling the demon's cult and uh, getting to try de to deal with the demon in some way. So th those are looking somewhat modular-esque, and now that they're starting to click, I'm starting to see how to maybe write one for a scoundrel situation. Mm. So that might come about after Blue Coats is wrapped up. And then Sean Nittner has a new version of this thing we've been calling Broken Crown, which is the... Um, the initial idea was a crew whose goal is to assassinate the immortal emperor, um, which is a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Really uh, ambitious. Yeah, yeah. But Sean's come up with a this very cool format where it's it's a one, two, or three shot uh, game. You pick which you you sort of say at the beginning. Okay, who are we that we're able to try to assassinate the immortal emperor? And th those are the different crews. You can play the Quicksilver Guard, who are the Emperor's personal bodyguard, who you've like trained generations of people to get into this position where you're 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 his closest protectors, and you're going to turn on him. Or you can play like a tier five faction noble house with all these resources and power, and essentially like 
uh, win the Game of Thrones against against the Immortal Emperor and and dismantle him that way. Um, and there's a third one that I'm blanking on right now, but oh, there's the cult. There's the uh, the, uh, the 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 chained demons that the Immortal Emperor has um, defeated over the centuries, who have figured out a way to amass cultists and power and are about to uh, be freed and and do their thing. But he's created this this sort of module system where if you play a one shot. Uh, you play the final move, the the final showdown maneuver against the emperor. Um, if you do two, then you do the 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 initial the setup to the final move, uh, the kind of middle act, and then the finale. And if you do the three shot, then you start out potentially centuries earlier, like establishing all of these beginning resources and, and arcs and, and vectors for for your power. And then you do the middle, and then you do the finale. And each each phase has fallout that you have to deal with, um, including the finale. Um, there's there's some good fallout <laughs> there. I, I I shouldn't like uh, spoil Sean's work here, but um, I, I I'll, I'll just say that if you succeed at killing him, some of the fallout is really bad. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that and that 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 structure is starting to look really promising too, at, 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 as a way to think about. Um, something that could be considered a, an adventure module for something like Blades. It's almost like taking that, that flashpoint scenario thing, pulling it down into a little, a little modular bit and then chaining them together, I guess is, is, is kind of the idea. Yeah. Cool. Well, talking of collaborations with Sean, there, nice segue. Um, the other thing of course, to speak about is, uh, Aegon or Agon or however anybody wants to pronounce it. There's been fights <laughs> over this, I'm sure, but, um, it's, it's a game that I played back in the day that I can vaguely remember, largely for telling other players they were weak and not worthy of this current challenge that we're doing. But it's it's essentially about um, Grecian heroes, right? So why don't you give us your, your, your pitch for people who haven't heard yeah, of it? Yeah, uh, I, I say Agon. Uh, it's easier to remember for me. It's like Agony without the without the Y. Um Right. I, I just imagine the, the voiceover guy for the movie going, mm, yeah. it was a time of heroes. <laughs> totally. Kind of, but, you know, what do you really want? Yeah, I think, I think, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to say what the Greek pronunciation is. Uh, that's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you, you play a group of, of ancient heroes um, who are lost from their homeland. Uh, among strange islands, the gods have kind of cursed them or challenged them, uh, Odysseus style, and you wander through this strange mist on the sea and then the mist parts and the gods reveal an island to you filled with strife and once you've addressed the strife there and the gods desires the gods give you kind of vague and capricious uh, desires of course and you try to deal with that uh, then the mists clear again and you go to the next island they light the, the vault of heaven the stars uh, light up for you to start to uh, chain together to show you the way home so after you fill enough gods constellations in the sky uh, you're able to return home again and and have your epilogue, your heroic legends told, uh, and there's a there's a way to score that essentially, and you have different different values of legendary status that you can earn. So yeah, you fight monsters, you solve people's problems. It's it's a very location based adventure type of game, kind of dungeon style, I guess, but without the, without a dungeon map or anything. Hmm. But you're definitely doing these kind of isolated, singular places, one per session usually, because that feels a bit more modular or the sort of thing Baz was asking about. Then it's like this is more kind of You've got this island to do in inverted commas. This is like your yep. job for the yep. for the week on this week's show, kind of thing, and yep. move episodically through. To... Yeah, it's it's very much that you know uh, 
what I think of as the classic D&D style where you show up that week and the GM throws down the, okay, it's the, the pit of the spider, spider queen or whatever. That's what we're doing. Everyone goes, okay, cool. And you, you go in and do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's like that instead of the kind of room by room um, approach. Aegon Islands are kind of that, that diamond shape here. Here, This is a good podcast. I'm, I'm making hand gestures. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and sketch it out for, for the readers for the show notes. <laughs> the, the diamond-shaped adventure where there's there's the, the narrow ends on either end. The, the beginning is the specific thing, and then it broadens out into a wide middle where the players can do various things to deal with problems, and then it narrows back down again into a finale. Yeah. And they all kind of fit that model. Uh, sort of like Dogs in the Vineyard towns, in, in a way. Sure. But the... Uh, competitive part that you were they were talking about before calling your fellow heroes weak and whatnot that's that's still in the game um it's it's less of a pvp thing against the gm it's not at all that anymore the original game had um was very much a a sort of gm versus the players um fair fight kind of concept um yeah yeah that's that's not part of the game now it's it is very much the heroes working together to be the first among equals and and to be the best, um, you all you need each other. Uh, the heroes do well as a team, but you always want to be be the best. And so you accumulate glory based on the strength of the opposition. The tougher the challenge, the more glory it's worth. You you do want to seek it. You want to seek out the toughest problems you can that happen to suit your character's best abilities and maybe maybe not so much your fellow's abilities. If you want to play it that way, um, and we keep track, yeah. Do. Some people really, some. <laughs> I mean, some people yeah. might not. But we've, we've let the groups kind of modulate that a little bit, but there is a big the top of your character sheet is an actual scoreboard tracker of glory, and you can see everyone's numbers. Uh, so <laughs> that definitely is driving the game, the the glory counter, and then that all feeds into uh, how your character advances through play, and then unlike. Most games, uh, Agon has a very specific sort of end point, um, and you can decide how long that you want that to be, if it's going to be three sessions, five sessions, 12 sessions, but but you have an end point, and the heroes actually retire, and they have epilogues, and you determine the fate of their, their family and their, their culture, and um, how they're remembered, and why, and you get to write your heroic epilogue, and all those kind of things, so I think some groups will really enjoy that uh others will want to play forever (laughs) and never stop um some groups just like those really really long games but i'm hoping they'll see the fun of that of of doing an arc retiring those heroes writing their legends and then starting a new set uh so you have that that nice sort of heroic epic poem cool now i know you addressed some of this in the the pdf we've got the the backer version at the minute which isn't quite finished yet but it gives you a good idea so there's a couple of bits about it that um Firstly, any kind of game that seems uh, pseudo-historical or mythological, there's always the worry for some people, like, well, I don't know anything about ancient Greece, what am I going to do? And then there's the other thing that, that might raise its head, whereas uh, someone thinks of, say, Jason the Argonauts or something, which was lots of white Hollywood actors of a certain stereotype on a ship. And where's, you know, where's the diversity, where's the challenge? So I noticed that you've got kind of like sensitivity readers and consultants on this book as well and that kind of thing, so... So how do you address that kind of like, what if you don't listen about the setting and, and perhaps your only window into it is watching a 1950s Hollywood movie and you kind of think, where's my place for it if I'm not one of those people? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, 
that's something that I'm really happy to see um, just in general, especially in the indie game community, just more awareness of, of what we're doing uh, culturally uh, as game designers politically. It's, it's, it's really very positive. And of course, it has everything to do with the fact that the audience is more diverse and the writers uh, and creators of games are becoming more diverse. So we're, we're not just having a bunch of similar background people doing the, doing the work. So that's all been really positive, and it's made it uh, very feasible to just raise a hand and say, hey, I need sensitivity readers, hey, I need cultural consultant, and bam, there's like all these great people who are very well, have a lot of experience doing it, in specifically for tabletop role-playing games. Um, it's mm-hmm. amazing, and, and we've got some, some great people um, on this project doing that. And it, it started right out of, out of the gate, essentially, because my i'm i'm very i i'm a great i love the classics um i I read the iliad all the time which i know it sounds strange but um (laughs) uh i really love it and a bunch of different translations and um i like a bunch of the modern uh writers too that that touch on those things i really don't like the persnickety nitpicking historical stuff in at the table um i don't i don't want to be that person and i don't really like playing in that environment i know some people do and that's cool if you have fun doing it but anytime you're doing something that that some sort of buff or expert can opine about there's a danger jason morningstar has addressed this in some of his games because there are a lot of them are historical some very specifically historical and we brought jason on to do a first pass on agon before sean and i worked on it and he took the game down the road uh, a fair way um, exploring the the historical aspects and how much or how little of that was going to be part of play. Um, And so by the time Sean and I started working on it, we already had a lot of material that Jason had, had made to help us judge that. And ultimately we decided to really move very hard away from history and from real so-called real myth. That's a strange way to put that, but um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh we decided not to not to have the action, the labyrinth and the minotaur um and and these or medusa or these these icons we decided to take pretty much all of that out to riff off of those those legends um in a way that would let people approach them fresh without there is no expertise to bring to our isle of nemos and it's gotcha. serpent cult yeah. like we just we just made that up uh so someone who knows a lot about apollo and the connections to alchemy they might have some interesting tidbit to share but they can't really be the expert and like quarterback everybody and tell everyone what to do what how to solve the problems of the island because they're they're original things but that meant we need we really needed to bring people in to check our work so to speak we didn't want to just do this strange pastiche that didn't treat that material uh, appropriately so uh james mendez hodes and um john stavropoulos both um helped a lot uh in that particular way just just in the greek sense um that this is this is what it means to us um, this is what we think in terms of modern greek people and ancient greek culture and stereotypes and they wrote a really good cultural primer for the book um to sort of orient people who've never thought about that maybe so we're, we've included that and then from my other side my the anti-historical side is uh, trying to drive the text and the and the material to say hey, this is fun silliness. This is 
go over the top. It, it can be Xena if you want it to be Xena. Um, and everyone can like speak like modern people and have 80s haircuts and, and just be <laughs> be as metal as you want. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, if you want, it can be really irreverent. And if you want to be deadly serious and stuff, that's fine. But we, we want the game to give create space for uh, people to have fun with it as opposed to uh, being de- slavishly devoted to the classics. Yeah, and I think I think this this final version, which uh, we'll be wrapping up this week, I think it's addressed those things uh, the way we want it to. It certainly reads well. Cool, I'm glad. So I guess the other part is um, the design. I mean, I, this is obviously what I've got at the minute. It's not the final product, but it immediately looks, I think, in beauty. You know, a lot of the art, full plates and stuff, like they could be on the side of a... Uh, Nosos Palace <laughs> or whatever else, or a freeze or something. You know, it's got that real sort of like authenticity to it, if you know what I mean. Even it's original artwork and that kind of thing. But just the, the design of character sheets and the way call-out boxes are placed and everything. And we noticed this through a lot of your work, like Blades and the other things as well. That like design and like almost like a graphic design ethos to the information you're presenting seems a big part of your work as well. And I think that's, uh, to my mind, a good indicator of why they're successful, as well as the written words. It's how the the physical look of the thing fits together and uh, providing infographics and just delivering content in the right way to people's eyeballs and into the brains, if you know what I mean. Does that does that make any sense or am I just rambling there? Yeah, that makes sense completely. That that was my previous career uh, was uh, as a graphic designer and art director and it's always been a real driving force for me as a game designer, um, starting out almost always in some visual form, drawing a diagram of, of how a system will work or sketching an interface of some sort, a character sheet or something. I really think that usability drives everything. It's, it's, we, a, a tabletop RPG document is sort of dead. You know, it, it, it doesn't do much. Um, it, it can be an interesting read uh, or, or something to daydream about or whatever, but until it's brought to life by, by the group, doesn't have the life that, that a novel does or anything, obviously. And so I always, I, I didn't ever want to kind of just punt that and say, okay, I've made this this document and now you have to bring it to life at the table, so good luck <laughs> doing that. Um, yeah. I think there's that middle ground that a lot of games have, have hit and I'm really passionate about of trying to provide the tools, some some kind of practical tools at the table to facilitate what you're doing just just having again going back to that getting on the same page page <laughs> the the ability to have something in front of everyone can drive play you know you if you see you look across the table and you see all those marks on the top of Sean's sheet on his glory tracker um and they're way more than you have um <laughs> you know that that's that does something uh it it, it it's not just there to to uh, keep track of the number it's it's a taunt in a way so yeah i think i'm i'm very passionate about those things they drive design uh for me um i definitely come to i i will come to a game with a nice looking character sheet and no idea of how to run it or what systems are gonna be like <laughs> before before i'll do the other the the reverse Ma- yeah. making that sheet and and bringing it to the table and then going Oh, like what do you what do you what do you do when you roll your action? Um, I don't know. Let's uh, let's do I don't know, let's do two d six or let's do whatever. But but it looks cool, right? It looks it, it <laughs> and that, and, there, and there's a lot to that. There's we are vis- a lot of people uh, are, are driven by by 
visuals and in in something like a video game you have you have so much information coming in to inspire you to excite you to cause interest what's that glowing tower in the distance and we don't really have that so not not just usability but but aesthetically having that piece of paper in front of you that just looks cool and the the magic the way you keep track of your spell slots is this coiled shadow tentacle or something you know you go oh yeah yeah i'm 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 a shadow wizard this is neat uh that <laughs> that yeah. it has an effect it it makes it seem cooler than just having a normal a regular box so I, I always want to marry those things and, and try to find a middle ground between over overly dressed materials and and usable things uh, that, that are still inspiring. Because mm-hmm. that, that, that the other problem is when it's this really dark, crazy background and you can't read the text and it's a bunch of printer ink so you can't write on it. And, you know, there's all these practical concerns too. But yeah. And you have to think about online play as well, I guess, with the current current technology level is a lot of games are getting played over the net rather than necessarily around a wooden table yeah it's got to look good on the screen we've been very fortunate uh jacob and uh tim who worked on the blades character sheet for roll 20 and have done others scum and villainy and and those uh they're very very good very good that's lovely (laughs) very pretty and functional and they have all those nice bells and whistles. Again, that aesthetic thing when you roll in the blade sheet and the little fiery background comes up behind the dice. And it's just right. really great. Uh, it, it adds a lot to the experience. And some games even, like, I, I would still probably prefer my Burning Wheel games face-to-face, but the the online character sheet does so much work for you. Uh, there are those practical concerns again where... I can calculate my difficult and challenging tests and everything for all my skills, and but also I can just click a button on the character sheet on Roll20 and does everything for me and tracks all of that stuff. It's so nice. I, I, I can't imagine designing without without that as my chief concern, my first driving concern, making, making something that... Starting from a place of the interface that the players are going to interact with and, and building outwards from there is definitely my style. Yeah, there's definitely something about that um, that blade sheet where if you're indulging your vice, you, you press the indulge vice button. It just feels like it's almost like sinking the needle. It's just kind of, I know this could be bad, but I want to do it anyway. Kind of thing. It's yeah, good. yeah. There's a definite feeling. They're to uh, it. they're doing our agon sheet for roll twenty also, so um, I'm really looking oh, forward to that. We're gonna have some fun animations. I think maybe we'll see, but I don't want to overpromise, but. Now, now you've said it on here, then it's going to have yeah. to happen. I mean, cool. So I think we're about time for an hour. Unfortunately, that's uh, that's flown by. But um, is is there anything else you kind of like want to pitch? Tell us what you were working on next, or any cool games you've seen, or anything you want to shout out for people out there? Yeah. Um, wow, there are so many cool games. There are there's a bunch of solo RPGs, itch.io, that have been coming out for the past year or so. Um, yeah. Plot Armor and uh, Cozy Little Game. Gentleman Bandit, my partner Allison, wrote that one. It's something I had never gotten into before. Uh, and in fact, I was kind of not interested in the idea, really. It's such a social thing to me. Um, but I played the first few and it blew me away. It Very interesting form of gaming. Um, if you haven't tried it, it's, it's worth worth a try. And most of them are very short. They take an hour-ish or something to play. Almost a character character exercise like i feel like 
some of these games um, could be adapted as as character creation processes for for games maybe because um, they really oh, get you okay. into that into the mindset of your character and help you understand components of a character that maybe you, you wouldn't have thought of sure. yeah they're very cool uh, there's some forge in the dark hacks that I mean there's so many cool ones that have already come out but Copperhead County uh, is is fantastic it's uh, kind of justified the TV series in a way kind of cu- cu- country right. criminals misbehaving the uh, sort of prohibition era with some magical stuff is really cool and Ali also is writing uh, this game called Heist which I'm very excited about a Forge in the Dark heist game um, made for one shots mission based Ocean's Eleven style just you you you, you could file the serial numbers off Blade's core and play that, but she really understands Forge in the Dark so well that <laughs> that's not what she did. It, she chopped it down into this really lean, beautiful thing. You have four actions. You you know, it's just really... Mm, it's it's very satisfying. <laughs> it does that that heisty goodness. I'm, I'm in love with it. It's in playtest now, but there's some actual plays online uh, to check out for that one um and mothlands is another forge in the dark game which looks really cool and uh one called a nocturne which is kind of a dark weird sci-fi thing there's so many it's <laughs> it's it's so hard to say it i was talking to allison about this the other day that for a while i i've took it pretty seriously to to stay on top of the state of the art in tabletop like try to at least be aware of what's going on by the titles of games even or like browse through them or try to get Mm. some of them to the table as much as I can and for a while it was sort of feasible I felt like I was only missing maybe 10% of what was going on and now it has exploded there's this whole giant influx of new designers into the indie space and I'm overwhelmed (laughs) I'm so overwhelmed but it seems like itch io is like the way the place that most people are doing that work so um i highly recommend people who are interested in what's sort of new and strange and different in tabletop to just go over there go to their tabletop tab and and browse through there are hundreds and hundreds of projects they're very exciting yeah i think there's um pissley richard mm, who calls himself yeah. online race well and said that he does the, the kind of indie rpg pipeline and at one stage it was kind of like what why would you need a weekly updates about that but like looking back at last year there's just thousands it's amazing. of games and it's like impossible to get your arms around it anymore isn't it you just got to kind of pick some that's interesting is. and the, the, let the rest wash over yeah. you kind of thing the one I'm getting to the table though I will say uh, Electric Bastion Land I'm a huge fan of Into the Odd and I cannot yeah, Chris is cannot wait is. to play Electric Bastion Land it is next on my list um, probably the next thing I'll actually play face to face yeah cannot wait yeah, we played that in a corridor with Chris at a UK convention and it got into a bar and then we got thrown out of another room and we were just <laughs> desperately trying to continue playing it. We couldn't manage it in the end, but it was um, there was more imagination in that 10 minutes than I played in some campaigns. Yeah. It was incredible. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah. I, I... It was a real-life dungeon, though, wasn't it? We're kind, of, <laughs> yeah. we're kind of like in corridors or behind fire escapes and stuff trying to find space <laughs> If we got moved on again. Nice. <laughs> All good. Cool. Well, we are at that time now. So thanks very much for coming on, John. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. This has been great.
And uh, if people want to grab you, we've mentioned your website, onesundesign.com, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, they can find you on Twitter and everything else. I guess you don't mind people contacting you and, and telling you how great your games are and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't mind, no. It's fine. <laughs> you can live with it. It's not going to bore you. <laughs> not yet. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you taking the time. That was great. Cheers. Cheers.